Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome to this week's episode of Off the Cuff with uh, me, Congressman Jared Huffman. It's great to be with you and uh, want to just first comment on the fact that I just finished a week in my district where we did several town halls and holy cow, something's happening out there. Uh, each of our town halls sold out uh, and in a couple uh, of different cases lately, we've had to get new venues and then new venues after that because the response was so strong. In Little Arcata, California, we, on about 48 hours notice of this town hall, we had 1,200 people show up. Uh, they were lining the walls, sitting on the floor of the high school gymnasium, packing the grandstands, and it was a great conversation. So I want everyone to know how grateful I am for the interest and engagement throughout my district. We're going to have many more town halls coming up, and a great way to find out about that is to subscribe to my newsletter at huffman.house.gov. We will tell you all about upcoming events near you. Now, we've got a really important guest on our show today, Gilda Gonzalez. She is the interim CEO of Planned Parenthood of Northern California. And uh, since December, she's been providing the executive leadership for one of the largest Planned Parenthood affiliates in the country. It covers 20 Northern California counties, including my whole district, current budget of $48 million, 450 employees, 20 full-service health centers, uh, and high-quality and robust education and public affairs programs. So this is really an important organization that serves an important role in my district and many others. Uh, Gilda herself has a long history in public service. Among many other things, she was the chief of staff to Jerry Brown when he was mayor of Oakland, uh, also staffed the city manager, Robert Bob, there, and was the president of the Port of Oakland Commission. So it's a real honor to have you on the show. Gilda, welcome. Yeah, thank you. So uh, there are a lot of myths about Plant Parenthood, and I, I want to spend some time talking with you about uh, the specific types of services that you provide. Could you speak to that, and, and what do you find uh, are, are some of the more common misunderstandings about the work you do? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'd like to start with is that this is our 100th year celebration. The first uh, clinic was open in 1916 in Brooklyn, and uh, it's never been easy for us. And uh, I believe that we can basically agree that I think it comes from a lot of the misunderstanding of who and what we are. Um, and what we do, what we actually do in Planned Parenthood is we provide high-quality health care um, to pri- uh, primarily low-income individuals uh, who may or may not have health insurance. And our services include everything from family planning and um, preventive work, uh, testing and services, even prenatal services at some of our sites. And, of course, we do uh, do offer abortion. 
And so I think that back to the question of myth is that that's all that we do. And it is a very, very minimal aspect of our services. We're very proud of the services, the abortion services that we do provide because we know that a vast amount of Americans do believe in safe and legal abortions and we're here to provide it. And But it only makes up anywhere from 2 to 3 percent of our overall services on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. That's a very important clarification. How about the, the socioeconomic profile of the, the people you serve? Mm-hmm. Again, um, a vast majority of our patients are are low income. Uh, I think the last uh, the um, percentage I saw is around 92 percent of our patients live at or near the federal poverty level, and so. Um, when a lot of folks talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, I think they don't appreciate kind of the safety net that we provide for individuals um, that otherwise would not have any access to any level of health care. So we are a critical part of the framework. And in many cases, although we do not provide primary care, in many cases we are the primary care provider for many people who can't get served elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So. In rural areas like uh, many of the parts of my district, uh, you would say almost by default you're occasionally providing primary care uh, to folks who can't afford uh, to see a doctor or to get out and get other types of insurance. Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah, so we so we don't provide traditional primary care services, but in most cases we might be the only health care provider that is seen and serving this individual. And so obviously if the person needs um, services beyond our capacity, we have to refer them out. And as you well know, in rural communities, that might be very limited. And so it's very frustrating um, to think about this question of defunding and uh, because we know it and also congressman i'd like to also add that in some of these rural communities where there's religiously affiliated hospitals and other entities may not offer the kind of services that we offer so it it makes it even more um i think uh egregious and really um awful of the thought that people patients would have access to little to no care. Right. So you're not checking people's documentation status when you give them care, right? Never. And you're taking a lot of Medicaid patients? Yes, we are. When we hear talk uh, here in Washington about block granting Medicaid or Medi-Cal or uh, going to uh, per capita type formulas and other things that might reduce the funding available in California to the Medicaid population, uh, what does that mean for the people you serve? So um, it really depends on how this legislation is crafted. Um, I think that for most um, uh, policy wonks who look at those types of conversations know that typically California always gets shortchanged when we start talking about formulaic block grants. And so um, we're highly suspicious of those those, uh, shifts and uh, would be very, very uh, careful um, uh, before we see anything in writing. I think that's been part, the the hardest part of this whole debate is 
the lack of structure. I know that there was a leaked document um, published last Friday of the House Republicans' plan, and that's the first we've kind of are seen of any outline or frame. Um, but outside of that, it seems to be a very fluid um, process at this point. But again, traditionally, that has not been a very workable solution for us. Now, House Republicans uh, are always talking about defunding Planned Parenthood. So let's talk specifically about that. Is there any extra funding, some specific line item in the federal budget that says Planned Parenthood? So, great question. And this gets back to one of the myths that we are not a standalone budget item. Uh, we are a health care provider, and so we operate as such, and we provide services, and we get reimbursed like other health care providers. So, um, so, yeah, that's, it's a complete misnomer about how we're structured. And so, again, we don't, without that Medicare, Medicaid, Medi-Cal reimbursement rate, we cannot provide services adequately and meet the needs of a tremendous amount of communities in your district and throughout Northern California. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to try to defund Planned Parenthood, you'd probably have some collateral damage that would hurt other providers as well. Is that also fair to say? That's what we understand. That, And uh, we have the California Primary Care Association that is the association that advocates for uh, other clinics besides Planned Parenthood, and they themselves have put in writing that they cannot handle um, and see the patients if we were to be defunded. So mm -hmm. um, don't just take it from me. Take it from others that are our partners out there in communities, and they indicate that it would be too much of a strain for uh, an already strained infrastructure. So another misunderstanding, you actually uh, provide health care to men as well, right? Yes, we do. Actually, yes, about 14% of our client base is um, services for men, and uh, we're always looking to increase uh, the client services for men, and we're really proud of that work. Um, we also are um, providing hormones for gender transition in uh, a handful of our sites, and we also provide PrEP and PEP to prevent HIV infection. So we're really proud of, of um, the traditional work, but also these uh, really innovative services that we're providing um, further. If somehow Congress was able to uh, block the funding that uh, contributes to your operations, where do you think the patients that you currently serve would go? What would happen to them? Um, that is a really hard question because I don't, I don't know specifically, but what I do hear from many people who are strong advocates to preserve ACA as well as Planned Parenthood you know, we we transition from ha seeing a lot of people in emergency rooms, and and unfortunately, I think we would see that trend going back, and that we would start seeing people showing at emergency rooms, which we know strain an already strained healthcare infrastructure. So, because um, we already know, and as I indicated to you, that our other primary care association indicates that they're their capacity is very limited. So it's um, a question that I think we all as Americans need to continue to pose uh, yourself in your capacity. And what is the answer? I don't believe that that has been definitively answered in any way, shape, or form right. that is satisfactory. Well, but the, the one thing I know just from representing an area that uh, has a lot of need 
is we don't have a whole lot of extra uh, capacity uh, on the front lines in rural areas. So, you know, in my experience, and it sounds like yours too, if you start taking away providers, um, there's going to be a huge amount of dislocation and people that just won't get care. That's absolutely correct. And we've already seen this in other states where they've attempted to restrict abortion access and um, decrease Planned Parenthood's uh, other services like education. Then you get a proliferation of uh, STDs and, uh, and people performing their own self-induced abortions and putting people's life at risk. I mean, it just is, is very misguided and, um, frankly, irresponsible. Let's talk about... Uh Women's reproductive rights. People are afraid right now across uh, the uh, spectrum of health care issues. Many people who've gotten health care for the first time under the Affordable Care Act are worried about losing it. People are worried about Medicare, uh, certainly uh, the block granting and other restriction on Medicaid. Um, and, and then there's the possible changes to the Supreme Court and, and who knows what could happen with this administration and this Congress on women's reproductive rights. Uh, my sense is that all of that contributed in some way to this incredible uh, march that women led throughout the country a few weeks ago. Um, what are your thoughts about the current state of uh, women's rights as it pertains to health care and also this movement that we see growing through things like the march and other activism that I'm running into all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hope you agree with me that it is just really refreshing to see this awakening of people being very conscientious of what's at stake. Um, the threats to basic human rights and access to health care are front and center. And I believe that this all this activism is... Um, is really slowing down this dialogue as we saw early on in December and January much bravado about uh, the repeal of ACA and defunding Planned Parenthood the first week when the new administration uh, is sworn in and here we are now entering March and I think that all this activism had a lot to do with slowing down this fast train where people stood up and said, no, we're not going to tolerate this. And yes, women, women have led this because we know what's at stake. It, many of these women who are out on the streets knew, and I am being encountered everywhere I go with women of a particular age who saying, I remember going to Mexico and having that abortion or taking my friend, taking my sister. These are very dramatic stories. Mm -hmm. And these women are, are, are not going to have it. They're not going to tolerate for those rights to be rolled back. Well, I, I agree with you. It's incredibly powerful and positive and refreshing. And, and I, uh, I'm fairly hopeful, actually, if we can sustain this energy, that we will be able to uh, prevent bad things from happening. But President Trump, um, if we could just talk about him for a moment, um, sure. has said some things that might be a little bit encouraging. He's he's pushed back against the idea of completely defunding Planned Parenthood. At least I, I heard him do that as a candidate. Uh, on the other hand, one of his first actions as, as president was to move forward with this global gag rule. Tell me, um, based on the first uh, couple of months that we've seen from this administration, what are your concerns and observations? Well, that was to be expected um, in terms of the global ga gag rule, which 
um, when there tends to be a Democrat that they um, they uh, lifted, and then when a Republican comes in, and then they in, uh, reinstate it. And so the difference that happened um, in January is that this uh, global gag order uh, is uh, more far-reaching than it has before. And uh, so I agree with you. We all heard um, candidate Trump, who even acknowledged that Planned Parenthood did, did good work. But this um, first signal of, uh, of the direction that he's going uh, really um, put a chill in our bones here because this gag order, um, again, is more far-reaching uh, and dictates the terms of how global health care uh, agencies are utilizing U.S. dollars and even in countries where abortion is uh is legal and um and the the additional reaching will impact healthcare um providers who are addressing HIV and AIDS and even Zika abroad mm-hmm. i mean this is this is goes well beyond what we have seen in previous administrations and how about neil gorsuch any thoughts about uh the man that Trump has put forward for the Supreme Court? So we, there's, um, as, as much as I've read, there's a little bit um, on uh, his position. I think that he has been in line with some of the previous Hobby Lobby type of uh, rulings. And so there is uh, caution and, um, and at this point opposition because until we have clear affirmation that he will um, uh, view Roe uh, and keep it intact uh, as most Americans wanted, I think we are very suspect of any nominee coming out of the administration. So lots of reasons for concern and lots of reasons to uh, really be grateful that you and your colleagues at Planned Parenthood are in the trenches, not only doing great work on health care, but also really great advocacy work uh, on these issues. Uh, I want to ask if there are any other issues or uh, concerns that you want to make sure that my constituents and the followers of this podcast hear. Yes, I do. I, I think it's very important uh, for the people we serve in, in some of the health centers, Eureka, Ukiah, and San Rafael, that they continue to come to us. We, we're going to remain open. And I think that um, it's very sad because we do get people calling us and saying, should I, you know, are you going to be open in a month? Are you going to, we're going to stay open. And, um, and we just want people to make sure that they're uh, relying on us for the information um, because there's lots of confusion out there. And so we're asking people to kind of sh- join our network um, if they come to our website, www.ppnorcal.org, and sign up with us. We can keep them apprised uh, and informed as, uh, as, as we continue to see the unveiling of this uh, federal uh, situation. And more importantly, uh, we stay connected uh, together because there's a lot of opportunities for further activation, um, whether it is in Sacramento or in other areas. Um, We want to stay connected to people, and we're here for them. I think that, again, as I started this conversation, it's been 100 years. We have every intention to be here for another 100. Good. Well, we certainly hope you are. And I want to thank you very much for joining me on uh, my off-the-cuff 
podcast. So thank you very much, Gilda, and uh, my thanks to all of your colleagues who do such incredible work in my district and throughout the country. And thank you for being a champion for us. We appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to take a question from a constituent, a constituent named Craig, who asks, what is the best course of action to defend our friends and neighbors against ICE raids on immigrants and related unconstitutional actions? And I'm glad that you asked this question, Craig, because I am getting this everywhere I go. And in fact, I'm, I'm really reaching out to spend time with uh, law enforcement in different parts of my district and local government leaders and immigration advocates so that we can try to all get on the same page on this important issue because people are afraid. Uh, executive orders are coming out from the president. Policies seem to be changing in ways that could affect immigrant rights. And we're hearing all kinds of rumors about new and frightening activities by ICE agents. Now, many times, uh, as we chase down the facts, some of those rumors are not actually true, but it speaks to the fear that's out there. And frankly, given some of the things that President Trump and Jeff Sessions and others have said, there, there's reason to be afraid. So we need to really sort out uh, the facts and try to get on the same page of what's going on. And I hope that I and my office can be helpful in that regard. We've got a new section up on my website and you'll see it if you go to huffman.house.gov under the resources area. And it has uh, all sorts of information to help people know their rights. Things like the fact that you don't have to reveal your immigration status, not even to law enforcement, not even at school. Um, Things like the fact that you should always tell the truth and not provide false information, Uh, certainly not carry any false identification, but you don't have to volunteer immigration status information. Um, The other thing my office can do if someone hears a rumor or is worried about a certain ICE raid or ICE activity, they can contact me and we can immediately find out from ICE what actually happened. Um, Sometimes it's just a routine detainer of someone who has a warrant out for their arrest, someone who was a felon and the same type of enforcement activities that we saw under the Obama administration. Uh, But the fear, of course, is that there's going to be new and different types of ICE raids, that they're going to start going into public places and schools and hospitals and things like that. So if you hear of anything like that, uh, go to my website, again, huffman.house.gov. You're going to see right there on the first page all of my district offices. There's a phone number for each district office. So wherever you happen to be, call us and tell us what you've heard. We will help chase down and find out exactly what went on. Uh, And then the other thing that we can do if people are willing to fill out uh, a waiver form uh, is we can find out specific information about individuals. So if you're concerned that a family member may have been detained or even um, held for deportation uh, and you don't know who to ask or where to go, call one of my uh, district offices. Now, the, the trick is we need to have that waiver form filled out in advance, and not everyone in the immigrant community feels comfortable filling out a form and giving it to their congressional office. Um, but that you can get those forms from us, and people can fill them out and maybe have a family member hang on to them, or maybe have a priest or somebody that they trust hang on to that completed form just in case it's needed 
if that situation should arise. And we're going to keep having meetings with advocates and community leaders to try to get this information out there. Uh, We know that there are a lot of pro bono attorneys stepping forward, legal aid and others, uh, to be ready to provide assistance to families and communities when these situations arise. And I will just say that if anybody listening to this podcast wants to do something to support those that are doing that important work, look for the organizations that are actually defending immigrants uh, and defending them in court. And you might want to consider providing, providing them with a little volunteer help or other support. Okay, I'm going to go now to a new twist on our podcast. We've got two interns in the studio with me, Rose and Maggie. They each are going to get to ask me a question. This is our intern segment. And before we get to their question, I'm going to ask them to just tell you a little bit about themselves, where they go to school, and maybe how their internship is going. So let's start with Rose. Hello. Um, (laughs) My name's Rose. I'm from Sonoma County. I go to UC Santa Cruz. Um, I've been interning since January, the start of the year. and um, Answering a lot of phone calls. Answering a lot of phone calls, talking to a lot of people um, from places I'm so familiar with growing up. So that's, that's interesting. It's fun. Okay. Well, you got a question for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I guess just because it's so... Timely? Fr- yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what, if you were tasked with improving um, or replacing the ACA, what would be your number one priority Mm -hmm. specifically for your constituents? Yeah, great question. I get it a lot these days. And uh, the first thing I I tell people is I didn't write the Affordable Care Act. I wasn't even in Congress when it passed. So I sort of came along after the fact. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I don't feel any particular personal attachment, you know, as pride of authorship or anything like that. But I do think it represents uh, a really important step forward in, a, in what had been a very dysfunctional health care system. Before the Affordable Care Act, we all knew people who fell on hard times or had some pre-existing condition and just couldn't get insurance. And we all knew people, uh, and we all experienced, many of us experienced this in our own lives, who were just getting these huge double-digit premium increases year after year after year, and there's nothing you could do about it. So the Affordable Care Act has helped on those issues and many others. It has brought millions of people under the umbrella of insurance coverage, many of them for the first time, so that uh, emergency rooms are less of a primary care provider than they had been previously because people have insurance and they can actually go to a doctor before they get really sick. But the real power, I think, of the Affordable Care Act are, is in the lives that it saves. And I've just heard some amazing stories about people who um, lost their job, got diagnosed with cancer, and just would not have been able to afford care without bankrupting themselves and spending down to, to Medicaid levels or something like that. Those stories are all over the place. And that's why it's going to be really, really hard for the Republicans to just repeal this and take care away. Now, if I were going to improve it, I try to do something about the fact that in rural places, like many of the counties I represent, there's not a lot of competition, and we need more competition. So I would love to see a public option. Um, That's something that we really should have included in the Affordable Care Act, and if it was in there, 
people in places like Humboldt and Trinity and Del Norte and Mendocino would have choices instead of having just one provider and being at the mercy of what they're charging uh, on covered California. The other thing I'd like to do is uh, provide a little more integrity to the networks that some of these plans are offering. So in Humboldt County, for example, you know, people were pleased to see that there were uh, uh, insurance products on Covered California that they could buy. That Many of them signed up and looked at the networks and it looked like all of these different doctors were included. And when they came to actually uh, want to see a doctor and get care, they learned that, well, those doctors actually weren't under contract. Some of them had moved out of the area. Some of them were dead. The network list was wildly inaccurate. We saw similar problems in Marin County where plans were just misrepresenting who was uh, part of their network. And there really needs to be some some tighter standards and um, integrity in, in that part so people know what they're actually getting when they sign up for insurance. But uh, the other thing that I'd try to do if I could uh, improve, fix the Affordable Care Act, in addition to the public option, I'd keep looking for ways to move us towards Medicare for all, single-payer health care, which I think ultimately is where this country will end up. Uh, one way possibly to do that, I've got a colleague in Oregon, Peter DeFazio, that's working on a bill to provide a national nonprofit health insurance entity that would operate in all 50 states. That, that's an interesting possibility, uh, a little bit like the public option, but it would be a nonprofit. Um, and then uh, I'm a big fan of just starting to open up Medicare for people before they get to 65. So maybe you start in at age 55 and you can buy in early. It's a great insurance policy for people who get it. Seniors are very happy with their Medicare. But it's also good for Medicare to get younger and healthier people into the risk pool because it helps the economics of that program. So those are a few things that I would do if, if I were king for a day and could <laughs> take a whack at the Affordable Care Act. All right, let's go to our next uh, great intern, Maggie. Tell us about yourself, Maggie. Hi, I'm Maggie. Um, I grew up in Petaluma, and I am attending uh, University of San Francisco now as an environmental justice student. Um, I've been interning with Congressman Huffman um, for about a month now, and I have a couple more months to go. And looking forward to it. What do you love more, the data entry or the uh, angry phone calls? It's tough. It's really tough. I don't know <laughs> if I could choose that. <laughs> so right, as an well, environmental justice student, um, I just wanted to focus on environmental advocacy. And my question is, given that many of your constituents share your concern about the environment and the consequences of denying climate change, uh, how do you suggest advocating for environmental justice to those that are not surrounded by the environmental awareness that is the bubble of our district. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big country out there, and not everybody is uh, is living and breathing these climate issues the way we do uh, in the North Bay and the North Coast. But I think we have a chance to reach a growing number of people, and I'm encouraged by the polling data that I see. Um, I think this extreme weather has really had an impact on people. I think they're starting to understand that something is changing. Um, the weather patterns are different. The intensity of weather events is, is much, much different. And um, so I think even among independents and Republicans, there's uh, majority support for the proposition that climate change is happening. A uh, growing number of people are uh, embracing the fact that humans have a lot to do with that. And 
frankly, it's really encouraging when people are asked the question, should Congress be tackling this issue and moving us towards a clean energy economy? Most people say, yeah, they, they should. And where we're really going to reach out and, and win new support uh, is when we start telling the jobs and the economic story of doing the right thing. This is not all bad news. Uh, there is a real upside to being on the front edge of climate leadership and clean energy innovation. And California is sort of experiencing and, and modeling that. We have the toughest uh, environmental laws in the country and the highest greenhouse gas reduction standards. And we also have the biggest economy. And it's been thriving. So these things are not uh, trade-offs as much as the climate deniers and many of the Republicans in Congress would have people believe that you have to sort of choose jobs or environment. You don't. They, they can go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, when you, when you get to a point, as we are right now, where solar energy employs more people than coal, where the fastest growing job in America is wind turbine technician, when year over year you're seeing uh, these incredible leaps and bounds uh, improvements in installed capacity for clean renewable energy. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. But um, the, the problem with climate change is we don't have a lot of time. We are in a hurry. There is urgency to this. And that's why it's so frustrating, even though we will continue to make progress during this Trump administration and in this Congress, we should be making faster progress. And so uh, we're just going to have to keep pushing, but uh, we're on the right side of history, I am convinced. And that won't just be the people in our wonderful part of America that sees that and, and that lead on that. I think increasingly it'll be, be people all over the country and all over the world. So thanks for your question. That's all the time we have uh, for this edition of Off the Cuff. We'll see you next time. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin Zone, Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.